This is Greg Lois. Welcome to uh, the Workers' Compensation Webinar. Today we're going to talk about temporary disability in New York. And unfortunately, we can't talk about this stuff without talking about coronavirus and COVID-19, which is also why uh, we're not in the studio, which is on the other side of the building. We're out here in our training room. And really, it's because there's nobody here except for receptionists and just a few people. Uh, most of my employees are currently working from home. In fact, all of them, with the exception of just a few very essential employees. And so I thought, uh, let's have a little fun and let's invite you into our training room. And this is where we conduct team meetings here and also do small group training at Lois Law Firm uh, and talk about this topic. And we're also going to have to talk about COVID-19 and coronavirus uh, because the impact on the labor market is impacting the way we uh resolve cases with a temporary disability or an accommodation issue. So it's going to be something we're going to talk about today. Now, my goal today is to talk about uh, the very basics of temporary disability, to talk a little bit about how we defend these cases, talk a little bit uh, about our common defenses and the way we approach them. But really what makes this great is that this is completely a live presentation, and I'm hoping that people type questions into me so that I can answer as many questions as possible. It makes it a lot more fun. Now, I will not say your full name, I'll just say your first name, so you know I'm answering your question. I will read the question out loud, and then I will provide my answer. So please, you can type in your questions as we go. Anything I'm saying doesn't make sense, type in and I will answer them as we go through. All right, so let's talk a little bit about temporary disability benefits in New York, and it's one of the four main benefits available under the workers' compensation law. Of course, the most important benefit is that of medical treatment. Second benefit is temporary disability or lost time wage compensation. The next benefit is permanent partial disability, and that can be either a scheduled loss of use or an LWEC. And the final and fourth benefit is death benefits or dependency benefits. So let's talk uh, briefly about temporary disability benefits. And obviously for people who are injured at work, legitimately injured at work, this is one of the most important benefits. Now there is a waiting period in New York and that waiting period is seven days. After the, when you get to the 15th day of lost time, you go back in and fill in that first seven day period. New York also has payer compliance rules, which impact uh, the provenance of paying workers' compensation benefits. And those rules say that you have to start temporary disability benefits, whether partial or total, uh, 18 days uh, after the event occurs, or 10 days after you know uh, there has been lost time. Often you'll discover that there is no medical uh, provided to the insured or provided to the carrier within that time period. So what do we do? Uh, the answer is we well, got to do something or you're going to get hit with a payer compliance penalty and nobody wants that. So what we've been advising clients to do has been to simply make a payment at the minimum rate, which is $150 a week. When you start approaching that 18th day and you still have no medical to support any lost time, but you don't want to fall afoul of those payer compliance rules. So that's how we get around that. All right, how much do I pay? Well, that is uh, completely uh, at the uh, result of what the person's average weekly wage is prior to the accident. And so it's really important that we can go back and get wage records. It is always two thirds of the average weekly wage subject to maximums and minimums, which I'll talk about in a second. But the statute in, in different sections talk about how that's to be computed. Our advice to clients is always take the last 52 weeks of earnings, and divide it by 52 total. Don't leave out days for holidays or sick. Just take the whole thing, divide it by 52. And that really gets you to the best and honest, most honest 
uh, most correct average weekly wage. Now, there are other methods of computing average weekly wage in New York, and we dissuade clients from falling for it. And there are methods in the statute uh, called multipliers, uh, and they depend on whether the claimant was a four-day or five-day-a-week worker. However, for our clients, we tell them, don't even look at those multipliers. Don't. Who cares? Take whatever the uh, time period or the total amount of wages and then divide it by the number of weeks worked. That's it. Very simple. And we go in court and we fight about this. And the reason for that is if you use the multipliers, which again, they're in the statute, and they're really meant to uh, make sure that people do not get underpaid. But if you actually apply those multipliers strictly, they will always result in a higher average weekly wage. And sometimes it's not a small amount higher. Now, because the temporary disability benefit and any eventual permanent residual disability benefits, again, SLU, scheduled loss of use, or LWIC, loss of wagering capacity, is going to be based on that average weekly wage. You got to be really careful about that. And we think that the best time to be fighting about average weekly wage is early in the case so that you don't end up with overpayments or underpayments. Now, there are maximums and minimums in the statute. The minimum is currently $150 per week, and the maximum just changed. The maximum as of July 1, 2020 is now $966.78. It used to be $934.11. So you can see that it just went up $32, uh, depending on which day you got injured. If you got injured on June 30, 2020, it was $934.11. That's your maximum compensation rate. And if you're injured on July 1st, your maximum compensation rate is $966.78. And remember, that new higher benefit only applies to dates of loss on or after July 1, 2020. So it's very important to be mindful of the dates of loss. In my experience, it's gone up every single year uh, since they amended the statute. Uh, so as of 2012, it's gone up every single year. Um, okay, let, next reminder, it's this live. Please ask me your questions. You can see that banner flying across the bottom of your screen. That's a reminder to type them in. All right, uh, average weekly wage. Um, we are always going to want to use the actual wages. Uh, again, we're not going to want to use those multipliers. Our adversary will almost always be arguing for a multiplier, and that's because it's going to result in a higher wage. The other thing we can do is if we do not have a one-year wage statement for the claimant, maybe they were only hired three months ago, maybe they only had a few weeks, maybe they only had one day of work before they had their compensable loss, that's okay. Uh, the statute allows us to use a similar worker. So we can find a person with a similar job title or the same job title and use their wages to show the court, hey, this is what this person would have earned in this average year. Now, uh, to be careful about this, the statute does not say that the similar worker has to be in New York. So many of my clients have come to me and said, Greg, this is the only person I have in New York who's got that exact job, job title. I say, okay, well, let's look anywhere else nationwide that we have someone with that job title and we can use them as the exemplar. Um, how about where the person has multiple employments? Well, to be fair, if they're losing time from all of their employments, uh, it is correct to use all of their concurrent wages to calculate their actual average weekly wage. That just makes sense. They get injured working for us part-time. They get they can't do their other part-time job. Well, the benefit should be based on both of those average weekly wages combined together. Of course, there's one more New York-specific wrinkle, and that's that New York only counts New York employments, meaning within the state of New York employments, as counting. So uh, as if you have an employee who earns uh, $20 an hour but only works 20 hours a week in New York, and they earn $20 an hour and they work 20 hours a week in New Jersey, guess what? 
New York doesn't count the New Jersey wages as the basis for them to argue for any wage loss in New York. So that's something to be mindful of, particularly in the summer, particularly with seasonal employments. If people are working at camps or as teachers, some of that um, income can be excluded. And there's great case law on that that is pretty sturdy, and we've relied on it in the past. All right, some terms of art, and these are again some New York specific terms of art. Generally speaking, although New York has a partial temporary disability benefit, it exists, and it comes into play in many cases, the doctors that are treating your workers' compensation claimant often will not give you a percentage of temporary impairment. So uh, it's more common now, but it used to be that they wouldn't use it at all. In fact, they would only use uh, three ways of sort of describing how disabled the claimant was. They'd say they have a mild disability, a moderate disability, or a marked disability. And I would get a lot of calls from adjusters and examiners saying, Greg, what does this mean, marked disability? And it would translate to a 75% disability uh, for a temporary status. Uh, nowadays, more of the uh, doctors are using the CMS-1500s in conjunction with a narrative, and they're actually putting a percentage in there, so that's good for us. Um, the best was the C-4.2 uh, family of forms, which required a percentage, and we would see in those that the doctor would put in a percentage as well. But if you're wondering what these terms are and how come they're resulting in the types of partial temporary disability awards that you're seeing, here's the handy-dandy translation. All right, just a quick reminder that in New York, you only pay for causally related lost time. And that's really coming into effect now or, or impacting cases in the age of COVID-19. So first, you never pay temporary disability or wage replacement benefits where the person's voluntarily retired. I mean, it just makes sense. Uh, they're saying I'm retiring for any other reason, not paying you benefits, you're not entitled to it because you're not attached to the workforce. You're not trying to get a job. You're not, uh, but for the disability, you wouldn't be working because you'd be retiring. So that makes sense. Uh, the second thing is where the employee has gone out and taken a different job. And typically we see this where someone's going to fulfill their life's dream and they're deciding they're going to go work for some um, maybe a social justice organization or a charity or maybe a religious group that they're a part of and they've said, you know, I'm going to go full time and do this. I'm going to go pursue that. They make dramatically less money and they turn around and they say, well, I did have that workers' comp injury. So now you owe me the difference in reduced earnings on a partial disability basis. There's good case law that says we're the claimant uh, voluntarily chooses to uh, select something that maybe they've always wanted to do that career, maybe they've always wanted to give in that way or be charitable, uh, but it impacts their earning ability, that should not be uh, considered a wage loss for workers' compensation purposes. So we wouldn't make up the difference. And this is also coming into a light in the COVID-19 world, where we have claimants who are saying things like, um, well, they closed my location, and because my location is closed, I am now entitled to workers' compensation, uh, temporary disability benefits. And the board has even put out some conflicting statements about this, asking us out of the kindness of our hearts to please pay people, but that's not accurate either. Um, where the business is closed for any reason, and it could be um, the dissolution of the entire industry, or in this case, by executive order, we've decided by executive order just to close businesses. Uh, when that happens, uh, temporary disability benefits are not they're not entitled to them because their lost wages are not related to the disability. Instead, the lost wages are related to the business closure. And that's something very unique to New York, and there's great case law on that. Now, a lot of my clients have said, Greg, 
That may be the state of the law, but you know what, Craig? I, I don't like that. We want to pay the temporary disability. Okay. Remember, the workers' compensation law only instructs you as to the minimum you have to do. Certainly, if the employer wants to continue to pay temporary disability under those circumstances, they're allowed to do that without penalty. All right. Generally, though, we're fighting about how do we stop paying temporary disability? Uh, statistics released by the board a couple years ago show that the average claimant was on temporary disability for 6.4 years, which is insane because that's more than half a decade and that's certainly not temporary at that point. But there's quite a resistance in this jurisdiction to moving on uh, to going to maximum medical improvement or returning to gainful work. And what's the reason for that? One, you've got a very high um, uh, maximum benefit of currently $966 a week. That's a great benefit. Remember, that's tax-free. Uh, two, you get to pick and choose your own doctors, so it's very easy to find physicians who are going to find you uh, something uh, disabled, whether it's 25%, 50%, 75%, or totally disabled. The doctor puts you back to work. You just go to a different doctor and say, I really can't work, and more likely than not, that doctor will write you out. So when you have this selection of their own physicians, they're able to keep themselves out. Um, and then there's also all sorts of market reasons why someone wouldn't want to work. You know, for example, a difficult job, outdoor job, and they don't want to work in the summer. Uh, it's almost 100 degrees out in New York City today. Nobody wants to work outside today. Nobody wants to be doing labor on those circumstances. So then we see those claims come and go. All right. When can we legally end a temporary disability? Well, first, when they go back to work. That's simple. It doesn't have to be for us. If they go to any other gainful employment, the claimant has the duty to reveal that they have a job. Two, when they've reached maximum medical improvement. Uh, and it's like a unicorn. Everybody knows what maximum medical improvement is, but I've, uh, I've never seen one, right? Uh, the claimants, doctors will almost never say this person's at MMI. They're, they've reached the maximum curative benefit. Uh, that's very rare in most cases. We're asking the judge of compensation to order them to go find it, get uh, permanency evaluations. And usually you have to use an IME to get to that step. All right, so at maximum medical improvement, but don't wait for that. You might have to IME them. Or when they have been released to return to work uh, and can work in an accommodated fashion if we can find some work for them, um, and they refuse that accommodated work. So when those things happen, uh, that's an opportunity for us to stop temporary disability benefits. And of course, as we discussed earlier, when they voluntarily retire. Now, uh, once they've talked to their uh, attorney, by the way, even if they have already voluntarily retired, their attorney will tell coach them, perhaps, uh, to say things like, I was really was thinking about retirement, but then the pain from this injury made me really decide to do it. And of course, try to undo that voluntary retirement. And finally, lack of attachment. And this is where the person has a work capacity. We can't accommodate it in the workplace because we don't have light duty work, for example. And they don't go out and look for work within their restrictions. That's called a lack of attachment to the workforce. So that's the other opportunity for us to stop. Now, attachment's a powerful defense and we never want to waive it. And so attachment, uh, when the claimant has a light duty release, our next step is to see if they we can offer them light duty, okay? If we can offer them light duty and they fail to accept the light duty position, then you can go before a judge and have their benefits terminated. Or if you're not under an order to pay, that's your opportunity to stop benefits right there. So that's the, the first step. If you can offer accommodated work and they refuse it, you're either going to go before a judge by way of filing our RFA2, request for further action, saying, judge, this needs to be on the calendar. This person's refusing to come back. You need to stop their temporary disability benefit. Uh, the other option is if you're not under an order to pay them currently benefits, you could just stop paying. It's a self-help situation. Okay, next. Uh, what if 
uh, they can work light duty or their, their doctor has given them a light duty release or our IME doctor has given them a, a light duty release and they're not looking for work or they're not coming back to us and we can't offer it. And that's very often. I've got a lot of employers that work I work with and they really can't offer a light or accommodated work just because of the nature of their business. It might be just too physical or they, they can't safely accommodate. The claimant in New York has a duty to go out and look for work on their own. And they've got to apply for many places. Uh, and they've got to prove that they've done it. And they have to fill out this form called the C-258 form, which shows all the places that they've been looking for work within their restrictions. They rarely do this, and we often have to push them to do it. But if they fail to do it, and particularly after a judge directs them to, we can stop issuing benefits. And that's another opportunity to stop paying them. Now, on the flowchart, I put down here, confirm whether they actually applied for the jobs they claim they applied for, because I think that's a very necessary step to make sure they're actually going to apply for those jobs. All right, uh, what if we can't accommodate light duty work and we don't want to cut them off right away? You can also offer them job placement. Now, under the law, they should be looking for job placement within the one-stop services of the Department of Labor uh, and within their local job banks. So they should be doing that. Do they ever do that voluntarily? Not really. Then you usually need to be judicially directed to do that. And have I ever seen anyone actually get a job from going to the Department of Labor one-stop? Not a lot, people. Not a lot. It's pretty rare, actually. Uh, we can also offer them private services. Remember, the workers' compensation law just uh, describes the minimum benefits we need to provide someone. But we can go beyond that, and we can offer them private services. And in fact, there are some companies uh, we've used Managed Care Network and got good results who went out and tried to find a job for someone. Uh, and there's also uh, uh, companies that will provide a work-from-home job for the claimant to attempt to do. And that's a great opportunity for those of us who can't provide accommodated work. All right. I hope you've uh, picked up a couple pointers so far. We did talk a little bit uh, about the basics here. I'm hoping there's some interesting questions. So if you haven't asked your question yet, now is the time to type it in. And while we look at this, I'm going to go over here and take a look and see what's coming up on the questions. So I'm really hopeful I have a, some good ones. The last session I just did of this, we had a couple of them. All right. I see a couple questions. I see three from Melissa uh, and one from Galen. Okay. So Melissa says, Greg, can we fight the 260 multiplier? Yeah, absolutely. I never stipulate to the 260 multiplier. Um, it's never to our benefit to have the 260 multiplier. You know, the statute um, in, in turn, the statute itself says that wages should be computed based on a 52-week average, uh, average per week earning. Okay. Other sections of the statute mention the 260 multiplier, which is great, and it's probably a good tool or it's probably necessary when you really had scattered days on, scattered days off, and we, again, we're always trying to do the right thing for the claimant. However, it always will result in an artificially high uh, salary figure, and so we should always be arguing before the judge and say, judge, we don't need to do multipliers. We don't need to use artificial numbers. We have the actual numbers, judge. Here's the actual 52 weeks. Let's use that, judge. That's the best uh, gauge of what this person was earning. Well, that's the fairest number. And when your counsel's in there arguing strenuously for it, even if your adversary is saying, well, no, I don't want to do it, uh, the judge will generally go for that common sense position, which does make sense. All right, so I'm glad um, 
<laughs> I'm glad you asked me that question, Melissa. Now, Melissa asked a follow-up question, which is, Greg, on the COVID issues, do you feel that the Workers' Compensation Board is basically putting out there a, quote, how-to, close quote, for claimants on how to get a COVID approval? Well, I think that's an interesting question. Um, just last week, I had uh, a pre-hearing conference on a COVID-19 case. We were successful in getting that case disallowed. NFA, FTP, failure to prosecute, no further action. And in that case, the claimant had both a positive antibody test and a positive RNA test. So um, are these cases winnable? Absolutely, 100% they're winnable. Causal relationship is always gonna be the claimant's problem. Uh, there's 100 years of case law that shows that communicable disease is not intended to be compensated. And as we're seeing now, when they test people, 60% of the people tested claim to have been self-quarantined before the test was done. So obviously uh, this stuff is so far out there. It's in the general population. It's not pinpointed into any one specific industry. So I think those are strong arguments. Now on the COVID issues, you're saying, does, are the, is the board giving them a how-to? Yeah, absolutely. Not only in the letter that they sent to all of my clients, all the insurers and all the self-insureds in New York saying, hey guys, it would be super cool if you just accept all these cases. No, that's crazy. Uh, but also in the documents they're putting on the board's website where they're pointing people to saying, do you think you got this at work? File a workers' compensation claim. They're clearly encouraging it, but is, that doesn't matter because the law is, the current state of the law is there's no presumption for COVID-19, any employment, regardless of whether the person's working or not. And the, the argument about causal relationship will defeat most COVID-19 claims. And we feel quite bullish about that. Again, we're winning them here. Um, Galen asked me, Greg, can you put up the chart again on the percentages of disability? Absolutely, I can do that. Give me one sec, bring that up so you can see it while I answer the rest of these questions. Okay, here we go. Okay, go back, go back, go back, go back. I'm leaving that up for you, um, Galen, so I hope you can see that. I'll leave this up while I answer the rest of the, any or any other questions we have. Um, Melissa asked the question, Greg, again on COVID, how do you feel about settling cases, section 32, to get rid of disputed COVID claims? Yeah, I feel about fine about it as long as the person is not coming back to the employment. There are many reasons not to settle them by way of Section 32. Uh, those reasons include, hey, um, you're not getting a non-disclosure agreement. So they could go out and tell every single person that works there to go file these meaningless, baseless claims. And even if you're throwing nuisance value at these claims, you might have to defend them. So that's something to be mindful of. You might be encouraging others to file them. Again, uh, we've been winning these at the pre-hearing conference level, so again, our initial stance would be to dispute and deny, put the uh, claimant to their proofs, make them come up with proof of causal relationship. It's never gonna be there. I don't think there's any doctor uh, who's gonna say, oh yeah, you definitively got this at work versus going to the store versus just walking through this, the park. Versus, I mean, they're, they're never gonna be able to say that, so you should prevail on most of them. But I'm not against using a small uh, section 32 uh, number just to get rid of it. Uh, that's fine, who cares? Again. I think that these claims, the majority of them will go away um, because there's an issue with causal relationship, powerful issue, and I don't think it's gonna be solved um, by the claimants. All right, um, scrolling down here, I don't see any more questions. I like the questions today, so thank you everybody. Thanks for those of you who asked us questions. Um, thanks for joining us again today, that was awesome. Uh, if you have any questions that I didn't get time to answer or you have, you were typing them when I said, all right, questions are closed, uh, you can always call me or email me 
And I hope everybody's happy and safe and having a wonderful summer. And I'll see you next month. So next month, we're going to be talking about medical treatment guidelines. There are new medical treatment guidelines now. Uh, so we'll be talking about them in our next webinar. Okay, everybody. Have a great day. See you soon. Bye.